but I was too small. And I, I, I had really this moment where I felt this is just exactly bringing me into the next level, into a life that I need to be broader. I need to have more yeah. of a, also of a relationship and dedication and having a possibility to get into a world which is much more linked to inspiration, to substance, was very important to me. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. Ever heard the adage, think global, act local? The pandemic taught every company another version of this, namely, stay local, but play globally. But my guest today was living that long before we learned the word coronavirus. Reynald Eschelman is the CEO of the Omega Watch Company, which is one of the many brands under the Swatch umbrella. The grandson of a watchmaker, he grew up in and still lives in a small town in the Jura Mountain region of Switzerland, where virtually all the Swiss watch companies you've ever heard of are located, as a matter of fact. As you'll learn, he abandoned his early inclination to become a physician when he became enchanted with watchmaking and the watch business as he worked student jobs in a watch factory. You're in for a fascinating conversation as we explore his path and talk about the cooperative model of business instituted by Nicholas Hayek in the 1980s and saved the Swiss watch industry from bankruptcy in the face of competition from Japan and led to the formation of the Swatch company we know today. Mr. Eshelman joins us today from his home in Bienne, Switzerland. Bonjour, Renaud. Comment ça va? Bonjour, Cathy. C'est un plaisir de parler avec toi. Ici, depuis la Neuville, au soleil de la Suisse, il fait froid, mais nous sommes très heureux d'être connectés. Bonjour. Bonjour. So that's Renaud Eshelman, the chairman and chief executive of the Omega Company, speaking with us from his home in Neuville, Switzerland, which is just between Lausanne and Zurich. And lucky man he is, it's very cold there today, but he's got wonderful sun. And I'm as delighted as you are that we're connected for this conversation. Thank you for giving me your time. Thank you, it's a pleasure. Always a pleasure talking to you. So Renaud, you grew up nearby where you live now in a very small village called Saint-Imier, which I think only has 5,000 some population today uh, and has been in the watchmaking business and had companies located there since the 
early 1700s. But put the watches aside for a bit. What was it like to grow up in Saint-Imier? Tell me a bit about your youth and your family and the what influences did you pick up on at a young age that you felt were maybe starting to steer you in life? Oh, that's that's exactly uh, uh, right, what you said. I grew up in Saint-Imier, which is in the Jura, one of these uh, very typical village of the Jura where you know most of the people are being linked to the watch industry, but still living in this kind of area. You have to remember that in the 17th century, when all these mostly French Huguenots came to, to, to Switzerland, to the Jura, they arrived there and settled down and um, you know, enjoyed of being two things at the same time. They were very, very talented uh, with their hands. They were good in business, but they were also very much of a lover of nature by definition, because they were also deep down, very respectful of the nature and very religious. So Saint-Imier and the Jura is a wonderful place where you are in the middle of the nature, you're enjoying being a bit outside of, uh, of the big cities. And I remember very well growing up there with, uh, with in a family that had this uh, still as a, as a kind of a, of a DNA, because 200 years ago, on my mother's side, uh, my grand great great ancestor came as a watchmaker, and, uh, and we kept in the family this feeling about being very much linked to the watchmaking, at the same time having the values of a, of a family that respects the society and, and, and the right values. So I remember not being very much involved in the watch business, but very much kind of uh, there and uh, being inspired by all the people in, in this industry, but also thanks to my family, which was very much engaged in the, in the city, in the church, and having these values of being at the service of a community. Respecting also the nature, I started very quickly because my family is very much into ski, to uh, mountain ski, to go on tour, and, and that's, that's still something that gave me a lot of, of values about how to uh, spend time and how to enjoy your spare time and your, your life as a citizen of a, of a small village. So the, the feeling about community, the feeling about being inspired by people that had success and also by this incredible industry that we were all more or less directly or indirectly living uh, from the watch industry, yes. So Saint-Emilie sounds like something we would call in English a factory town when you were very young, sort of a town with one primary business. Is that right? Exactly. And uh, to be honest with you, I, you know, my father is a scientist. He was a geometrist. So he was never into that kind of business. But we always had friends or my parents' friends that were involved with that. And the uh, destiny of, of this factory town, as you call it very well, was linked with one or two names. And uh, as a matter of fact, when I you know, went to college and, uh, and wanted to make my first money, there was no discussion that, uh, that working there as a trainee only for one week or for two weeks was always linked with the watch industry. And that oh, yeah. followed me always during also my then later university time when I went across to the German-speaking part of Switzerland. That was always something that I could rely on for being, if you want, you know, part of, of, of a bit of my DNA and something that I would uh, understand and cherish as a fact of, you know, the country or the place you come from. Did your parents sort of plant an image or vision in you of your grandfather did and everyone here does. So certainly 
certainly you will be a watchmaker or did they encourage you to you know think very broadly and discover for yourself what path would be best for you it's a very interesting question you're you're asking because my grandfather died quite young my great grandfather lived until the age of almost 100 and he was the watchmaker so if you want there was ah. nobody really close to us in the family that was linked with watchmaking anymore for for many reasons but also because of uh, the big catastrophe i can call it the big crisis we had in the 60s and the 70s due to uh, many many problems and issues and quartz revolution that have done quite a lot of problems into the swiss watch industry cutting almost 50 percent of all the jobs so you you would think that from that point of view i had fathers or uncles of some of my schoolmates that lost their job. So that was also very clear that my parents would not anyway, by definition, push me into any kind of a special business. But furthermore, the idea of working for one of these big brands in the watch industry was not maybe the, the best idea that any parents would think of because of the fact that they, as young adults, not personally my parents, but some of their friends went through all these problems linked with the crisis, which made that even at Omega today, it's been now only 10 years that we have immense demand for becoming a watchmaker. As 20 years ago, there was always still this idea for young guys, maybe not to start back into this industry that had created 40, 50 years ago, so much of a, of a problems into some of the families because of losing their job. Yeah. So what kind of student were you in school? Active and eager or, oh, gosh, let me out of here? Or... Uh, you maybe have to ask my parent, but I think that I was always very interested. I'm somebody that has, a, has one of my most important, I would call it positive or negative also, that I'm a very curious. I love to understand and to know. So I was uh, honestly quite a very good student and, and uh, I was working quite a lot and I always loved to be at school. And that's also why I kind of um, very easily went to a college and then to university in terms of deciding what I want because I, I always uh, wanted to learn more about many, many things and had a lot of, of passion for not making the best grade, but but just by by managing all this, even though that in some some of the of the, of the fields maybe it was not everywhere the best, but it's it's kind of a, a curiosity that I still believe is is really something that I try also with my colleagues and some of the young people I'm the mentor from. I always try to push that to the next level because I think that that helped me a lot into my career and especially as a, as as a student to uh, get to uh, the best notes, yes. So college in the Swiss lexicon is closer to what we would call high school yeah, in yeah. the United States. It's that advanced secondary. Was it not very common for pupils from your school to go to college? Or, you know, over here, it's, there's a lot of presumption that, you know, everyone should go to college. But it's not mm. always that way in Europe, is it? The, the, the system in Switzerland is already a system where there's only about 20% of any students or any people outside of finishing school that would go to that level, which is a very clear way of getting to the next level 
which is university. And because it's a state-owned only, there is, a, from that point of view, only that possibility of doing a, even universities today. So that was common for students like me. That was already some kind of a decision of not getting into a apprenticeship or getting into a lower business school. But it was not something that was incredible. You know, we were quite a lot of uh, students that, that went through this, this way. But it was very clear that getting this way, you would go to uh, until university. Yes. It opened up a lot of doors if you yes. took the advanced higher education. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that there's not a curriculum either at college or university about watchmaking or running a watch business. And I read somewhere that at one point your your dream or your vision for yourself was to be a doctor working for the Red Cross. Can you trace back to you know what began to crystallize for you and when about I want to do that, or I want to be that, or maybe it was, I'm not sure what it means I will do, but I want my life to be like such and such. My vision for myself was always the third one. No real idea about a job or a title, but I kind of knew what I wanted my life to be like. I wanted it to be adventurous and inquisitive. And that seemed to, you know, it existed in people like Jacques Cousteau and early astronauts and It didn't look like it existed in my father. I think I was wrong about that, but I was only 12. So I'm curious how your your sense of your life path, how did that crystallize into your thinking? And and when, how old were you? That's a very, very very interesting question because as you mentioning with with very much of right, I was always, you know, kind of a, I would say, split between this incredible will of being, you know, as, as I got, from the values from my parents, and I still still have it, and 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 truly believe into this kind of a of a mission that we have, being somebody that can inspire, being somebody that can be at the service, and kind of a creating additional value to the world. And and from that point of view, I think that what we do with the with Omega, with Orbis, with many many very big charities is is extremely good. But I had that, and it's something that. I always kept in my mind, and that was that was one of the reasons that was very clear. This kind of a of a doctor and the Red Cross and helping, not much for the adventurous level, but much more about this kind of a of a higher level of doing something for the world. Always been something very important. And on the other side, I have to also admit, as I said, being nevertheless always around this watch industry, the watches and the having the chance to, you know, in many, many aspects to live and to read. And I was always somebody that was from that moment already around 10 and 11, very much interested into how to manage on the marketing or distribution level uh, uh, watch brands. That was something that, that was always very much of an interest to me. And finally, we had to decide, and I remember very well, that was uh, something that was hard to me and uh, and we decided that with uh, after having made uh, quite a lot of analysis about questions and and having had some kind of a of a mentor to help me and funny enough the most important decision was not about kind of an analysis about which of the side would be the most important but was more about you know at that moment doctors especially in Switzerland having to become scientists very much of a specialist 
And it was, and I have to agree, it was uh, something that it was not what I wanted as my job. And that was the point where I really decided in terms of being from a value point of view, a doctor was totally different than what was presented to me as being the doctor of today. Why I say it's quite funny, because I think that today it's exactly what everybody wants to have back, what we call here in Switzerland, like the family doctor, somebody that you can talk to and, and explain and have the feeling that you don't need every time to have the biggest specialist in any kind of small parts of your body. So somewhere, you know, that was, that was at that moment, not at all what was looked after, but sometimes somewhere that would be today. But long story short, I think I, I decided quite easily that I was a big, big fan of all this strategy that I was reading into some magazines, some books, and listening about, you know, developing brands. That was something that, that attracted me uh, very much. So that already at college level, I went into one of the sections that was very much linked on finance and administration and accounting and, and all that. So very, very clearly decision being taken at the age of 12, 13, and then go the whole, the whole world with a lot of success, not only because of making it to every single uh, next level, but also because of the interest that I have. I found my way very honestly until I started my PhD, which was very much finance, where there at that moment with the age of 22 for the first time, I kind of asked myself, was this the right uh, way? And then that's when the, the moment where I, I chose to stop it, to come to Omega, to enjoy and honestly to make it only for one year back into what made me decide to go all the way up to a university and even starting this PhD. And that was 25 years ago and I've not left the company since then. So it's funny enough that at the age of 22, 23, I already had the feeling that maybe, you know, I was kind of a slave of a small portion of that business that I wanted, but not the right one. Uh, fortunately enough, I changed and I'm very happy about this. Yeah, so it sounds like that point when you're 12, being a doctor as it was built in Switzerland at that time, felt like too narrow a straitjacket. For someone like you with such broad curiosity, exactly. how much of your curiosity you would have needed to edit out and put aside? And did I get that point well? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I really can empathize with that because I can think of several moments in my own life where either a role or a place just I could feel in my bones. This is this is too small. And I don't mean like it's no value for many, many other people, but for me, this is too small a dress to put on. I, I need something that's roomier. Fully agree with you. You know, when I was uh, writing my PhD, honestly, already made a, 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 the BA and all that, and then starting into this tiny level of uh, an extremely interesting into being a consultant for big pension funds and and working even on the PhD on this kind of science and make it better. Already at that moment, I wanted to write about the social aspects of pension funds, yeah. the social aspect of, of managing this money. And I already remember very well, talked at that moment with my, uh, my professor that 
at that moment about not the word sustainable, but exactly the same emotion about how far should all these pension firms being founded by the money of every single employees have to go into being, you know, the biggest investors into many, many companies, or should they nevertheless, because they are like based on the money of all these employees being kind of an example. And that was the whole topic about it. How example should such a pension fund be in its management of its funds? But I was too small. And I, I, I had really this moment where I felt this is just exactly bringing me into the next level, into a life that I need to be broader. I need to have more yeah. of, a, of, a, of a, also of a relationship and dedication and the fact of having a possibility to get into a world which is much more linked to inspiration, to substance, was very important to me. Yeah, you were ahead of your time in the sort of socially conscious investor mindset that's you know, coming more and more to the foreground lately. Yes. But, but yes, back then, I'm sure your professor and your bosses would have said, that's not, that's not what we're about here. You know, <laughs> narrow it down, my, my son, get your nose on this track and let's go. Yes. So it would, must have been quite handy as you grew up to know that if you needed some extra money or uh, keep yourself busy in the summer, I imagine there were always part-time jobs available in some of the watch companies. Is, is that kind of where you started, where you got your first taste of elegant and precise watches and your first hands-on yeah. touch with them? Exactly, because you were, and, and you were mentioning exactly the same world. You know, it was a factory-based village. So for somebody going into one of these most prestigious universities, when I was looking for three or four weeks of training, there was always somebody you knew. And I remember very well my father talking to the, to the boss of that huge company, Longin, that is still in the group, by the way, that I know still very well, and making always a small space for me. And at that moment, one summer, I remember I had the incredible privilege to meet one of the oldest watchmakers of this company and help him about creating what will later be the museum. So our job, my job was just to listen and to write on an Excel sheet every single remark he would do on the treasure of Longines by just listening making a list of all the watches that were in the museum, if you want the first part of an archives. And that was four weeks of extremely and incredible intense work, but probably one of the most eye-opening emotional moments of my life, because that was pure emotions being discussed, claimed by these old watchmakers, by opening it, sometimes talking about the life, sometimes talking about some details, but always, always underlying the story, underlying the beauty, underlying the importance of each and single of these watches that he would consider himself as kids. Yeah. And at that moment, I understood how incredible the watch industry is in terms of inner values. Not everybody gets to that, but it meant a lot for me. Yeah. And I have always to say that that made me very much big fan 
of that industry. And also already at that moment, a big fan of uh, the fact that thanks to uh, Mr. Hayek and, and the invention of Swatch in the 80s, that whole substance was not only saved, but on the other side, even brought to a next level. So that, you know, by hearing about watches that were sometimes 150 years old, but getting to this emotion, I understood quite quickly that that was also something it would be incredible for me to be able to continue for the next generation. So the link between the past, the passion for the past, to bring into the passion for the next generation, that was something that really blew my mind at that moment. And I went every night back home with a big smile because I understood that I was not a watchmaker. I would not be a good museum guy, but we need to defend. And we have there so much to make people passionate around the world uh, that it could have been a very good way of, of doing my career. Yes. I can imagine that his, just to see and, and probably to feel his professionalism mm. and his mm. passion. And like you say, his care for each watch and what's inside it, like each one was a, a child, a favorite child. That would have to be infectious. You mentioned in passing the foundation of the Swatch Group. And I yes. think I confessed to you when we first met, because I not wasn't very knowledgeable about the Swiss watch industry at the time, that to me, Swatch was just a particular group of watches on display in jewelry stores. I, I didn't appreciate it was this large umbrella and this really revolutionizing of the watch industry. In a nutshell, maybe you can help my listeners understand, people who are with us today, what was it that Mr. Hayek did? You, you talked about the doldrums, the crash for the watch industry in the 60s and 70s, and you regard him as the savior of the whole industry. What's that story? And he is because, you know, I had also the, the chance many times to, to present his uh, case study at, at Harvard because they, it's a very incredible uh, document that has been uh, written there. And it's being still uh, very much and very often used as a, as a saver of the watch industry on a very brief level, if you want. That was, a, that was in the 50s and the 60s a new trend coming. And don't compare it with any trend of today. It's, it was a moment where there was only watch brands from many countries in the world that were selling automatic watches to a very clear way, a watch that you get when you got, I don't know, engaged or graduation or you become an adult. And it was once in your lifetime and you'd have that watch forever. And it was kind of a a structure that was the same for 60 years, just after the Second World War, or even before it started to have the watch as being such a such a kind of a milestone of your life. And then quartz was invented, quartz being, you know, another way of giving energy to something. And the whole Japanese industry made into uh, what can be called as, a, as an evolution of a watch with a totally new level of prices first totally new look because of this digital, because of the fact that it was a bit of a strange way of doing watches. You don't need to have any more hands. And what is very interesting is that we can take it as an example of an industry that 
has been very successful in doing, in managing, and in continuing to do exactly the same for many, many years. So it was not old fashioned, but the way managers and the way companies were dealing was only about one or two ways in terms of beauty, in terms of precision, and they were not really open to the world and to the changes. So there was a new industry coming. No one was challenging that. No until... one was challenging. They were quite successful. And I have also to say quite arrogant and also quite healthy, wealthy. So that, that was at the moment when these quartz watches came in. And just to put a little bit of a point on this, because you had to teach me some of this as well. Automatic watch means the kind that as, it, as you wear it and your wrist moves it, that's what winds it back up, right? Exactly. But it's a mechanical watch. Yes. And quartz has a bit of quartz inside that vibrates all always at the same time and rate, and it can go forever. You have to have a battery. It's got a battery in it, usually. A battery in, and then the quartz will vibrate and, and give an input. But it was suddenly the Timex or the Casio or the Seiko that exactly. you, know, you could afford on your own salary or saving your allowance. You did not have to wait until your parents gave you one for college graduation. Exactly. And, I, and you have to think the marketing was different. The distribution yeah. obviously was mark, was different. And you got to one of these first, as you were mentioning, level of saying, I can afford to have it. So what did Hayek do in that? He comes into that scene. First of all, that industry was so successful so many years. So they all started to be very kind of arrogant too. They all wanted to have the biggest factory, the big thing. So they were more looking at their neighbors than just looking at the market. That's also one of the points. So that suddenly what that happened, as you were mentioning, some incredibly new wind was blowing into that market. They took it first with arrogancy. Secondly, they did, of course, suddenly copies of what was happening to the level that they were just like destroying their own brand. So what Mr. Hayek did at that moment was very clearly, because as I said, more than 50% of the people employed in the industry lost their job. About two thirds of the companies went bankrupt. So it was not just that that was an issue. It continued for some years until the point for many, many companies, there was no return. And what Mr. Hayek made, it's an analysis first about the situation of some of the big brands of this industry. Omega was one of it, Longin, Rado, Tissot, and there was all these brands that we know today are being so successful that were very much in trouble. And he, with some of his friends, decided to create not another watch from these brands, but to create a concept which is called Swatch, second watch, a concept that was exactly on the same price level, but that would be revolutionary in terms of creating a community creating an emotion around, around the wrist, creating something that was more than 50 years ago, watch becoming also symbol of some emotion, of some success, of some meanings that you want. And uh, I can say that that was the renaissance of the rebirth of the Swiss watch industry to the level we have today. So Mr. Hayek was not just doing a copy of anything or saving with his extremely intelligence uh, some companies. No, he said, we need to have something new. That is a revolution into this industry. But new that aligns with who we are and what our heritage is, right? That's going 
against the, the these quarters. Yeah, yeah. I recall Swatch when it first the Swatch watches per se when they first hit here, all the way they presented themselves was only barely about knowing what time it is. It was about style. Who are you? What kind of style do you want to show and present? Look, we have all these varieties so that your watch can express you, not just tell you time. Exactly. So Katie, you have exactly also the point. It was in the same price like the competitors were in with making problems to many other brands, but with a symbol, with meaning, with with something different and totally revolutionary. And from that brand, with a huge success, instant success, creating a new sense for wearing a watch. He could save a lot of watch brands and create the Swatch Group as we are today with brands like Omega, Tissot, and, and Longines. And later on, because of this success, we could recreate the big success because we were saved at that moment of the brands like, of course, Omega is one of them. And each of you in the time before Mr. Hayek, Everyone had their own factory and everyone had all their own suppliers and and so on and so forth. I understood that he also sort of, he made some of that a shared service. So the Tissot and the Omega, they can all draw on some of the same common resources. So you actually are a group, but he didn't didn't make you all wear the same clothes. He still let you be Omega. He still let Tissot be Tissot. And exactly that's also part of this very famous Howard Business Review, where it's very clearly also stated that he did not take all the brands and made themselves. To the contrary, he created two levels, the production side and the marketing and sales brand side, which is very important and is being referred and called wedding cake or just the birthday cake with all the brands. And still today we have this, and that makes the whole group so unique on the top we have uh, Breguet, Blancpain, and in the king of jewelry, Harry Rinsons, and then we have Omega and Longines, Tissot, Rado, and going down, we have a Swatch and many other brands. So it's very clear that the brands always been different and independent, but at the same time, there are some shared services about casing, dials, hands, including movements, which also there within the movement factory we have our own units, which are making only, ah, like today, only Omega. Omega. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so really each brand is driving its own success, but their success is contributing to each other's success. Yes. And that's very important to explain because now everybody talks about luxury. Everybody talks about branding. Everybody talks about creating a new mar- brand, a new watch. I think that the part that is also very important to mention is that we are the only group that is 360 degree or 100 person organized so that we can very much work on each of the single part of our watch instead of just buying something and putting a name on it, which to me, of course, is very important because we also represent the whole watch industry in terms of uh, not only quality, but also about pioneering technology And it's so much more important to be able to uh, talk about our watches as I'm talking on a daily basis, when I can talk about our craftsmen, our mechanical specialists, our master watchmaker, our supplier, 
that are part of the same room. Not just by contractor. Exactly. It's a really refreshing balance of competition and cooperation. Mm -hmm. uh, and it feels to me like a contrast to uh, the stereotypical, I would say, American concept of competition is it's very cutthroat. It's you know, sharp elbows and sharp knives. And it's more, I should be the only one standing if I've really been good. That would be the evidence that I'm really great is I would be the only one standing. Whereas for you, the evidence is Omega's doing super well and all of my family is too. Yeah, we are. We had this, especially, as I said, you know, the, the sense of the family Hayek of being the owner of many, many brands, but still keeping the family feeling about the success of our colleagues is also a bit part of our success, which is important. That's very cool. Thanks so much for joining me. My conversation with Renault will continue in part two as we explore his passion for mechanical watches, the artistry of timekeeping, and the pure democracy of time, our most precious commodity. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.